to dismiss them. Yeah, children, you can go ahead and go to Children's Church, and uh, you meet right out here. You want your children to be involved, you may go out there and meet the leaders and see where they are. We certainly understand that, but thank you for those of you who work in that. And thank you, choir and orchestra. Good job. Looking forward to hearing you tonight. And uh, I was coming up here and somebody asked me, how was it coming up the steps? That's not the problem. I can't use my hands for much of anything. They don't want all of this coming apart. And so uh, until they have it written down December 21st, I can't push up out of a chair or anything like that. So if you ever see me over there just kind of stranded, just a couple of you guys come help me up and we might be okay. Or just leave me there. You might just want to just say, leave, leave him over there. And uh, who knows what's going on. But uh, we're doing well and started cardiac rehab. And if you want me to, I'll show you my scar. <laughs> and uh, now, don't you hate it when people do that? And you'd probably be surprised. It really looks uh, pretty good. But um, I'm thankful for everything that the Lord has done. I was thinking today, if we sing any songs about my heart is in your hands, that's going to put some images in my mind that maybe ought not be there or a broken heart or anything like that. But uh, we're on the mend. It gets better from here. <clears throat> I don't have much pain now unless I <coughs> cough and that kind of hurts. But other than that, it uh, feels fairly normal. My biggest problem right now and what you can pray for is I've just got to build my strength and stamina back. And so uh, we'll go as long as we can today. And uh, if uh, that's 20 minutes, so be it. But we'll do it. And we'll do it for the glory of God and try to do it in His strength. But I would like to have a word of prayer because um, I've had so much attention put on me it makes me uncomfortable because I know that at the same time there are a lot of you who are going through things that are challenging in your life and challenging to your family, challenging to your health and challenging even to your walk with God. The enemy is attacking and using those kind of things. In fact, I kind of am feeling now that after the COVID thing, I think a lot of Christians, and I don't mean this to be insulting, but to be challenging, I think a lot of Christians have just gotten lazy. And I think we're so used to just, well, I might go to church or I might not. And if I do, I'll just sit here on the couch and watch it on TV. I'm glad we can do that, but that is no substitute for gathering with the saints of God. I think sometimes we get a little bit lax, like some of you aren't going to Sunday school like you did before COVID. I want to challenge you. Get back involved. Take the bull by the horns and be the kind of believer or be a better believer than you were before COVID. Some of you ought to be in the choir using your talents for the Lord or playing an instrument for the Lord. Some of you need to volunteer to work in the nursery. We need help back there and we need people that'll take care of our kids because even those little bitty children, they may not understand everything that's going on, but they can feel love and acceptance. And my prayer for our nursery and preschool is that those little children will have it put in their mind that this is a place of love, a place of peace, a place where people care, that we might be able to point them as they grow older to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so I just want to ask you to kind of evaluate and think about yourself. Have you kind of grown fat, sassy, lazy, 
complacent in the things of God because it's pretty much time for all this to be over and for us to get back on track with who we are and what we're supposed to do. And I just want to lay that challenge out to you and to anyone who may be watching by live stream just to simply say as we watch our world rotting, decaying, falling apart as we get dismayed and discouraged by all of that. This is not the time to slack off. This is the time to be praying. This is the time to be witnessing. And this is the time to be faithful. This is the time to be seen and counted. This is the time for us to stand up as the people of God. For greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And where sin abounds, the Bible says, there does grace much more abound. Which actually means this is one of the greatest times to ever be alive because there's a lot of sin and it's showing up in a lot of places. That means put a smile on your face. You're going to see the grace of God like never before. And so let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes and let's ask for that, okay? Oh, Lord God of the ages, sovereign ruler of the universe, how could we fail to give you any less than our all? And we want to ask, Lord, that the Spirit of God would stir us to do what you have gifted and enabled us to do for the glory of God. And I pray, Lord, that if anybody is kind of slacking off in their prayer life, may they rally today to be an intercessor. I want to pray if somebody is just kind of taking worship for granted, that today the Spirit of God would rally them to worship in spirit <coughs> and in truth, as Jesus said the Father was seeking. I want to pray if somebody is just kind of backed off on volunteering, whether it's working in the nursery or helping out with a certain ministry or being involved in things that are going on. I pray you would rally them that they would want to be front and center and to stand up and to be counted and to be an encouragement to their leaders. I want to pray, Father, that if we have backed off on our witness to the lost, I want to pray that you would burden us and rally us together that we would indeed be witnesses for Christ in this dark, decaying, rotting, stinking world that we would shine as bright lights in the darkness and that our witness would be a sweet-smelling aroma coming up out of, the, out of the filth that you would be pleased with. I want to pray the same would be true in our giving, the same would be true in our Bible reading, the same would be true in the way that we live, that we would live holy lives and we would live like Christians. I want to pray tonight that you would bless the choir and the orchestra, that they would sing with joy, they would sing from their hearts, that the music would be in tune and together and gelling together, that there would be energy and there would be power that comes from the Holy Spirit so that the message is communicated to encourage believers, and if somebody lost is listening, they might hear the gospel of Christ and repent of their sins and put their trust and faith in Christ. I want to pray as I think about people that are sick, 
people that are recovering, people that are going through trials right now. Give them strength. Give them good medical care. But above all, may they feel the healing presence of Jesus Christ in their life. I want to pray for the grieving. My heart goes out to Russ Demeter and his family. And I want to ask you to bless them. I want to ask you to comfort them and to comfort Betty and to comfort Jill. And I want to pray that this family would feel the presence of God and that Brother Don's service would bring people to faith in Christ. I want to pray, Father, that we would take every circumstance of life and not just wait for the good times because we have no guarantee of that. But I pray, Lord, that we would worship you and honor you now as life is right now, whatever circumstance we're in. And forgive us for the times when we rally at the bad times but slack off when things get good. You're worthy of more than that, Lord. And so today our goal is to proclaim the worthiness of Jesus Christ and that his people might say, Thou art worthy, O Lord, and that we might fall in line to worship you in spirit and in truth. Bless your people and thank you for the privilege we have to pray to you. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Turn in your Bibles, please, to the 31st chapter of the book of Exodus. And uh, I am looking forward to preaching this today and uh, asking the Lord to bless it because we're basically going to be talking about the gift of worship. We're kind of combining Exodus with Christmas here because worship really is a gift that God has given us. And the reason that I say that is because these people are still in the desert, they're still at Sinai, and uh, they are being instructed as to how to build everything, but nothing is built yet. We've been looking for all of this time at the instructions God has given, but the tent hasn't been put up, nothing has been made. That's coming later on. But God is telling him now in this 31st chapter something that is very, very, very important. Now, by introduction, let me just kind of uh, say that without worship and without the gift of worship, what would it look like as we approach God? If God didn't give us instruction... If God didn't reveal himself, what would it look like? Oh, it would probably look like a golden calf. It would probably look like Cain bringing the basket of fruit to the Lord that was rejected. It would probably look like the Tower of Babel that God smote the people with confusion because that wasn't what God wanted. That wasn't what was really worship. That was man bringing himself and his best to God. And it's always inadequate. And this is man coming saying, this is what I want to do and what I want you to have, O Lord. And the Lord says, all I see is sin, imperfection, inadequacy, your own glory out of all of this, and I'll have nothing to do with it. We've got to be careful that we don't come thinking that as we worship God, we serve a God who is needy. We serve a God that needs our money, or he needs our presence, or he needs our volunteerism, or he needs our work. 
We serve a God who is so far above that, he needs absolutely nothing. What we need to do is turn that around and say, God has given me the grace to be involved in his ministry, to be involved in his worship. God has been so kind and good and merciful as to take someone like me and make me fit to give him praise, to allow me to be involved in his worship. And we would see worship as a gift, and we would see it as an honor, not something that we have to do, but something that we have been honored to be chosen to participate in. When we think about some people who come before God thinking that somehow He needs us and we're contributing to Him and enabling Him to do what He wants to do, we need to think about it this passage with all of the furnishings that are there. Did God need the craftsmen? (coughs) Did God need them to be able to get anything done. And here's what I want you to think about. If God could say, let there be light, what happened? And there was light. Don't you think he could have said, let there be a tabernacle? And there was a tabernacle. Let there be an ark of the covenant. And there was an ark of the covenant. God didn't need any of this. But we're going to find some people in here That God, through his sovereign choice, some of them named, two of them are, but a lot of them are unnamed, which kind of gives us a clue that it doesn't matter whether we get recognition or not. This is about him, not about us. This is not us coming and saying, I'm a consumer, and I'll go to church if I get what I want or what I think I need out of it. That's the wrong way to look at it. That makes us the... uh, the center of worship. This is about God's people coming together to say, Thou art worthy, O Lord, and to worship Him the way that He wants to be worshipped. I was thinking, how religious were these people? How faithful were these people? I don't really know. I don't really understand exactly where they were at this point. I'm sure they were happy to be out of Egypt. But how well did they know God? You know, we make an assumption, well, they were Jews. They kept Passover. They ate kosher. They did all of that. Hey, folks, listen. These people that we're talking about right now had never read a Bible. In fact, the Bible wasn't written until they were in the wilderness. So anything that's in Genesis and any law that's in Exodus or Leviticus or any of those books had not yet been written. So for 400 years of slavery, what did they do? And I thought about this. Number one, how much did the Egyptian slave owners allow them to practice their faith? That would be one thing. And number two, how much of it did they know after 400 years? All they had was oral tradition, and there wasn't just a whole lot of that. And how many of them really paid attention to it? How many of them just simply gave up on God and all of his covenants because they saw generation after generation after generation after generation for 400 years die in slavery? How many of them just gave up and said, maybe there's no God, or maybe the Egyptians are right, or maybe God has forgotten us or forgotten his covenant? I don't really know where they were. 
But I do know that God was shaping them into people that would worship Him and people that would obey Him. And in order for them to do that, He had to show them. He had to tell them. Now, God could have just crossed His arms and said, hey, figure it out for yourself. And none of us would have figured it out, much less these people. But God is so good and so powerful that He gives them a multiplicity of instructions, even repeated, and he makes it very clear exactly what he wants, exactly what they are to do, and exactly how acceptable worship is to be performed. And so that's why I entitled this message, The Gift of Worship. You don't realize what God has given you in the ability and the freedom and the instruction to be able to worship God. So let's think about that. And let's try to get away from just whatever is contemporary or what is ancient that is wrong and let's make it clear, uh, very clear, about what we're supposed to do. So let's read our text, okay? Let's go to Exodus chapter 31 and we'll begin with verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, See, I have called by name... Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship or skill or craftsmanship, verse 4, to design artistic works, to work in gold, in silver, in bronze, in cutting jewels, for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. And I, indeed, I have appointed with them Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have put wisdom in the hearts of all of the gifted artisans. Notice it's plural, all of these unnamed people, a lot more people than... Uh, uh, these two that are mentioned. Why? That they may make all that I have commanded you. It's not a free-for-all. It's not make whatever you want. You do what I have commanded and empowered you to do. Verse 7. Then he names them all. We've been through this. The tabernacle of meeting, the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is in it, and all the furniture of the tabernacle the table and its utensils, the pure gold lampstand with all its utensils, the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the laver and its base, the garments of ministry, the holy garments of Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons to minister as priest and the anointing oil and the sweet incense for the holy place According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. You see, if we took that seriously, what did God want? Simply for them to do what He commanded them to do. That would be the basis for worship. It's not a matter of, for the last, oh, probably 150 years where churches have been saying, what do the people want? What do they feel? What do they think they need? What will attract the masses in here? Spurgeon even wrote about the fallacy of that. 
He wrote an article called Feeding Sheep or Amusing Goats. He talked about the apathy that existed in his day. He talked about the loathing of long sermons. Everybody wants it short, sweet, get out of here so we can get on with life. Where's God in all of that? Where is our joy in the Lord? Where is it that we are in wonder and in awe of who he is? It's been a problem for a long, long time now. So let's consider some things. Number one, God initiates worship. Just like everything else, salvation, creation, whatever it may be, it all comes from God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow, right? That's the way life is. And you notice that when God starts off this passage, he speaks to Moses. How did Moses know to write all of this down? Because God spoke. How did the Jews know what they were supposed to do? Because God spoke. And our worship had better be biblical. Our worship had better be according to the revelation of God. Not what we think, not what we want, not what we feel. I hope that we can think while we're here today. I hope you feel something while you're here today. I hope your life has changed. But that is secondary to the fact that I pray that God is pleased. And I pray that God is honored. And I pray that our service today means something to the heart of our Father because if it didn't, we have missed the mark, which means we have fallen short of the glory of God. So that's the first thing. Worship initiates with God. If you want to be a worshiper, go to God and ask Him to put a spirit of worship in your heart to teach you how to really be a worshiper in a way that will please the Lord. Number two. God is never dependent, nor is he limited by human ability. You know, it's easy to look around and say, well, if I had this person's fame, then I could really count for Christ. If I had this person's ability or their talent, then I could really do something for Christ. I mean, who hadn't thought about something like this? If I were a a very famous musician, they would pack out places like this, so that I could give my testimony. But who am I? I don't have anything to offer. I'm not going to attract a crowd. Nobody cares that I'm here today. Nobody really is impressed by any of that. And you may feel much the same way. We might say, oh, if I were a major league athlete, can you imagine if I were an NFL All-Pro linebacker and I came and the church were to advertise Greg Keenan, all-pro linebacker, is going to give his testimony today. We could pack this place out. But as it is, who cares? Who wants to hear my story? What do I have to share or to do in any... And we always have this idea that if I were like so-and-so, if I had their looks, if I had their personality, if I had their background, if I had their story... You know, back in the days when I was a kid... We'd have revival meetings that lasted a week long, and before that, they were two weeks. But I remember on uh, so many of them, the evangelist would say, Now be sure, and don't miss Friday night, because Friday night I'm sharing my testimony. And everybody, oh, because we knew this guy used to run in a gang. Or this guy used to be in drugs and alcohol or all of that kind of stuff. 
And you know what I remember about so many of those stories? He would preach for about 45 minutes, very entertaining. And about 30 of it was about how he used to live. The drugs, the alcohol, the sex, uh, crime, the, all of that kind of stuff. And then it would switch, and then I trusted Jesus. And you could almost feel in the crowd, they go, huh, well, the best part of the message is over. What a sham when you think about it. When we glorify man, and even worse than that, we glorify the sinful, shameful part of man instead of seeing the glory of God in our salvation. The glory of God in how He has taken us and made us what He wants us to be. I don't have to be somebody who spent time in prison to be effective for Christ. Now, if you have spent time in prison and you can use that for the glory of God, do it. I don't have to be a pro athlete to be effective for Christ. But if you are a pro athlete and you can use that for the glory of God, do it. I don't have to be a charming, charismatic, handsome type person in order to do something for God. But if you've got those things, use them for the glory of God. But understand this, God is not looking down at you and saying, man, if he just had a better personality, well, if he just had more fame, if he had gone to more baseball camps when he was a kid, man, then I could really use him. That's not our God. And God was not looking down at this congregation of Israel and saying, well, what do you do with a bunch of ex-slaves now? Boy, if I, if I could have won Pharaoh over... Well, then I could do something. If this were the Egyptian empire, then I could do something. But what am I going to do with all of these? And the reason that wasn't a problem for God is because it wasn't about the people. It wasn't about their limitation. It wasn't about what they lacked. It wasn't about what they were compared to the empires of the world. This was about God. And God taking them out of Egypt, having them in the desert, teaching them how to worship, and making them a great nation. And isn't it amazing that out of the stories we read in the Old Testament, with the exception of like Egyptians and some people like that, there are very few of these people left, but the Jew still remains. And the Jew has been persecuted, and there have been numerous holocausts, not just Nazi Germany, even before then, but they still remain, and Israel still exists as a nation because that's what God has said. Why? These are the people of God. This is an amazing thing that doesn't testify so much about the Jews as it testifies about God. And our lives are so that in the lack that we have, in our limitations that we have, in all of the things where we feel so inadequate, in our weakness, He is strong. This is about magnifying God. So God has you right where He wants you. He has our church right where He wants us. We don't look around and say, oh, if we were a mega church, look what we could do. Hey, look, folks, they have their own problems. God has a plan for us and He has given us everything we need to do His will at this point in our lives. No excuses. This is not about what we can do for God. 
It's about what He can do through us. This unlimited, almighty God wants to work through you for His glory so that, Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, now to Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, be glory in Christ Jesus in the church through all generations, world without end. Boy, that's a wonderful promise. And so we look around and we say, we don't have to be like church A, B, or C. All we have to do is be faithful to God. We don't have to be like person A, B, or C over here. If I were just like that, then I could count for God. No, just be who God wants you to be. But do it for His glory. And do it in the power of His Spirit. Because worship is not initiated by man, but by God. And God is never dependent, nor is He limited by human ability in any way, shape, or form. Notice that when these men were called and when they were set together, the Spirit of God gave them the ability to do whatever it was that God wanted them to do. And He gave them all of this ability and He did it for His glory and honor. God will give you what you need to do what He wants you to do at the time that He wants you to do it. Bezalel means in the shadow of, and that makes me think of Psalm 91 where the Bible says we are blessed if we're under the wings of the Almighty dwelling under His shadow. The shadow meant protection. The shadow meant closeness. The shadow meant that God was here. There's a song that says, always remember where there's a shadow, there's a light. And sometimes we walk through the shadows, but that shadow there is the shadow of the Almighty. And Bezalel was in the presence of God, filled with the Spirit of God, so that he had wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and the skill for workmanship. That about covers it all. And that reminds me that the Bible says you are complete in Him, lacking nothing. The Bible says you have all things pertaining life and godliness. Why? Because the Spirit of God dwells in you. And so those times when you go, oh, I could never do that. Well, if it's not the will of God for you, then don't worry about it. You're not supposed to. But if it is the will of God and the command of God, how dare you say you couldn't do it? You have the God who created the universe dwelling in you. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Worship Him. Submit to Him. Surrender to Him. Obey Him. And trust Him to open doors that no man can shut. And also, He'll shut doors that no man can open. Which leads us to point number three. God never leaves His children in a state of inadequacy. Somewhat redundant. But you'll notice here that this is not where uh, Bezalel, you know, you, this is all on you, son. Get it all done. Can you imagine what a weight that would be on his shoulders? I got to do all this? I got to make all this? I got to put all this together? I'm thinking if one person had to do all that, it wouldn't have been done by the time they got to the promised land 40 years later. But you'll notice as we move on down, to verse 6. God is making a point here. That's why he repeats this. And I 
Indeed, I have appointed with him a holy ab. I have done this. This is not a holy abs idea. It's not Bezalel's idea. It's not Moses' idea. This is God. God is the one who has put this man in his place. What has God appointed you to do? What has God given you divine appointments to carry out? What has God given you skill and wisdom and understanding to do? Folks, listen. You can be a welder to the glory of God. You can be a doctor to the glory of God. You can be an educator to the glory of God. You can install irrigation systems to the glory of God. Whatever it is and whatever you do, just do it for His glory. That's what gives you significance. It's not the amount of your paycheck. It's not the amount of prestige that you have in the world or the kind of car you can afford to drive. It's simply this. Are you doing it in the power of the Spirit for the glory of God? That's what gives you significance in all of this. And notice here that God is saying, uh, Bezalel, you're not on your own. I have put some people here to work with you. Aholiab is going to be gifted and equipped to help you out in all of this. And not only that, but when you read on down, there are the gifted artisans, the unnamed number. Boy, if we would get over our lust for recognition, if we would get over our covetousness for power, and for people to notice us and to pat us on the back. If we would get to the point to where all that mattered in our lives was the approval of God. The Bible says, Be diligent to show yourselves approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed. Are you going to be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ with how little you use your spiritual gifts? Are you going to be ashamed when you have so little to lay before the Lord when your potential was so great, but you were too lazy, you were too stubborn, you were too preoccupied, you were too involved in other things. You let everything else crowd your life to the point where there was no time for God or little interest in God. How embarrassed is it going to be when you have so little to lay at the feet of the one who gave his all for you? And so God has called us to work, not as a group of individuals, but as a team together for His glory. And when we come together in unity, and when we function in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do everything and anything that God wants us to do, because it's not just about us, it's about Him. And so there ought not be any lack in the church if we all will do what we are supposed to do. God has put a team together and he doesn't leave them in a state of inadequacy. He doesn't sit back and say, this is what I want, but you can't do it. And so I'm ticked off at you. He doesn't do that. What God demands, he actually provides the means and the ability to do that. And he does that through his people. Now, it's interesting that all of these things are going to be made. And let's not get the idea that they were just completely ignorant about any of these things until uh, God told them to do it. He used their skills. He used their skills. Where did they learn these skills? When they were slaves in Egypt, they learned how to work with jewels. They learned how to work with gold. They learned how to work with silver. They learned carpentry and construction. 
all of those kind of things. But while they were doing it in, in Egypt, they owned none of it. They could take part in none of it other than by the lash of a whip. And they did it for the glory of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was the one that exalted himself in all of that. But was it a useless time there in Egypt? No, those 400 years in Egypt, the people of God were learning skills that when they were combined with the power of the Spirit of God, amazing things happened. See, I don't know uh, about you. I've had a couple of tents in my life, and we've gone camping in them, but I don't have a one right now. But this tabernacle that they built, it lasted generation after generation after generation after generation. I don't know how many generations. I didn't count it up. It lasted 40 years in the desert. Those are pretty harsh conditions. But let's not forget, it lasted during the time of the judges. It lasted during the time of Samuel. It lasted during the time of King Saul. And it lasted all through the reign of King David because it wasn't until Solomon built the temple that the tabernacle was no longer needed. You know what I'm saying about that? Man, that is some craftsmanship in that tent. Think about the furnishings that were in it. How long did they have to last? These people knew what they were doing. And these people were doing what they had learned when they were nothing but property, nothing but chattel in Egypt for the Egyptians. But God was working in those menial tasks. God was working in those people that were considered nothing more than uh, property by the Egyptians who were working for the glory of Pharaoh saying, just hold on because I can use you And I can use you whether you're a person who knows how to take care of animals or whether you're a person who knows how to hammer gold into a lampstand. I can use what you brought out of your past life. And when it's used for my glory and empowered by my spirit, all of a sudden it becomes significant. And that's the way your life and my life is. You may look back and say, oh, I wish I wasn't raised the way that I was. Don't do that. Don't do that. God was sovereign even before you were saved. God was sovereign in your upbringing. And you may have been raised as poor as Job's turkey, but that was for a purpose. You may have grown up in a rich man's home. Don't be ashamed of that. That was for a purpose. Your ancestors may have been discriminated against, but don't be ashamed of that. Look where you are now. That is for a purpose. Whatever it may be, understand that those things you know how to do, you may not be able to conduct an orchestra, but what can you do? You can come up here and you can shovel snow off of a sidewalk for the glory of God. You may not be able to preach a sermon, but you could come up here and dust furniture for the glory of God. You could help out and volunteer for different things. Do you see what I'm saying? Is this making sense? And all of this, God is taking these people and he's not saying just dismiss your past. I had a purpose in all of that. Now get to work and do what I have called you to do because I don't leave my people in a state of inadequacy where they can't carry out what I want them to do. We can do what God wants us to do. We've got to be available to him. And number four, number four. 
This comes around the text and in the context of the text. God is worthy of worship in the deserts of life. It dawned on me as I was working on this, where were they? They're not in the promised land. Where are they? They're not in the place where everything is good and the land is conquered and the enemies are driven out. They're not there. Where are they? You've got to go all the way back to Exodus 19.1. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness, the desert of Sinai. You know, God is making a powerful statement here. He's saying to them, I don't want you to wait until good times to worship me. Oh, it grieves my heart. Some of you that are here today, some of you that are watching, you may be saying, well, I'm going to get back involved and I'm going to serve God, but I need to wait until times get better. I've been hurt. I'm in a desert time. I'm in a rough time. Oh, it's too hard to serve God now. What are you saying? God's not worthy of your worship unless everything is going well for you? What kind of a person are you to look at the God who gave you life, who gave you family, who has given you freedom, and above all has given you salvation? And you're going to withhold the worship that he deserves? Read Job chapter 1. Job loses his wealth, he loses his health, and he loses all of his children. And the Bible says in all of this he did not sin against God. Why? Because it says Job worshipped. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Well, that's true. But Job couldn't leave it there. He goes, blessed be the name of the Lord. We worship God in tragedy. We worship God in the boring, long, drawn out, dry, hot deserts of life. We worship Him in the storms. We worship Him when everything seems to be falling apart. He's worthy of our worship. But you know, there are other people that they don't worship God in the good times. The only time they ever worship is when the tragedy comes. Someone in the family dies, well, we probably ought to go to church. Tornado hits, we probably ought to go to church. Terrorist attack... We probably ought to go to church. But when everything settles down, you know what happens? They forget God and they walk away from it. And so we need to understand, no matter who we are, no matter who you are, no matter what your situation may be, you need to be a worshiper of God. He deserves that. Worship is for the time in the desert, not just for the promised land type situations. I think about how God used all of these people and how he brought them out of Egypt. And the world would look at them and say, what are they? They're just a bunch of ragtag, insignificant people. But folks, understand this. You may have the most insignificant position in the world, but if you're doing it for the glory of God, you are more significant than the President of the United States. You're more significant than the Pharaohs of this world. And that's what God is doing in here because it's about the greatness of God. So he tells them, I want you to worship while you were in the desert. So let's just conclude with these four thoughts. Worship is not centered on our wants, our needs, or desires. Just stop it. It's not about that. 
It's not about how you feel or what you liked. It's about the glory of God. Number two, God's Word, God's Spirit, and God's glory must drive our worship. It's not a performance. It's not just something we do legalistically to try to gain points and better standing with God. His Word, His Spirit, and His glory must drive our worship or it's no longer worship. Number three, worship is not giving our best to the Lord because the Lord doesn't need our best and our best is always inadequate. That's called the way of Cain. What we do is we say, God, what do you want? And what is it that you demand? And then we obey him as Abel did when he brought the lamb. And number four, worship is not for the good times or the bad times. It is for every time. Let us be the people of God that worship God no matter what state we're in, no matter what is happening, no matter what our country is going through, no matter how we feel, let us always be the worshipers of God and avoid the way of Cain as we're cautioned about in Jude verse 11. Woe to them for they walked in the way of Cain. They gave everything to God and said he ought to be happy with it. He ought to be pleased. Look what I've done. We don't do that. That, fall, that causes us to fall into error. And you cannot worship God until you're born again. Until you come to that place to where you know that you're a sinner, that you are deserving of hell, and that God in His love sent His Son to live a perfectly holy and righteous life that you could never live. And that Jesus went to the cross and God the Father poured His wrath that you deserved on His only Son. And Jesus bore it and He drank the cup until it was empty. And he said, it is finished. Then he rose from the dead and ascended to God the Father. And the Bible says that if you will trust him like that, trust him and him alone and surrender to him as Lord, then you'll be saved. And at the moment of salvation, you become a worshiper. But you also need to think, those of you who are saved, that you've got to be careful. Even the people of God kind of messed up on this. In Malachi 1 verse 6, God says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, then where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? God tells him how. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? And God says, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised or overlooked or taken lightly. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? You know what God is saying? He doesn't want your leftovers. He's not a God who said, well, I'll just take whatever I can get. He demands that we give him what he requires and that we do it with our whole heart and that we do it in the power of the Holy Spirit and according to the word of God. And God says, don't treat me 
as an inferior to your governor. You know, there are some people that go, well, I'm not sure how much I need to give to God and, you know, what I need to do. Try that with the IRS. Am I right? And yet when it comes to God, we always want to kind of negotiate and we want to go on the cheap. We want to give God something that cost us nothing. And I'm reminded of King David we wanted to offer a sacrifice to God. When the owner of the land found out it was for a sacrifice, he goes, hey, just take it, I'll give it to you. And David says, no, I'll pay for it, for I will not offer the Lord something that costs me nothing. And I think that today there are a lot of people that are trying to give God things that cost them nothing, as long as it doesn't take away from what I want, as long as it doesn't take any time that I'm willing to, unwilling to give, as long as I don't have to give up anything, well, then God can have anything He wants. And you know what that means? It doesn't exist. We're not really worshiping because we're giving God that which costs us nothing. And in doing that, we are saying to the Lord, most importantly, and to our family, and to our society, serving God is cheap. Serving God is optional. And our God is a beggar who will take anything he can get. He's a little kid in class who just says, if I just get one valentine, you know, I'll be happy with that. And brothers and sisters... I conclude by saying this. That is not worship. And that does not describe our God. Heavenly Father, for those who have never been born again, would you save them today with the gospel of Christ that they may become worshipers. For those of us who are born again, May we worship you as you deserve to be worshipped and as you demand to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. To do, to serve, and to give what you have put within us so that your name is praised, so that people are helped, and so that the church is strong. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.